As we continue some of our top replays from Clinically Press, this one features Corey Campbell of Omaha Spine and Sport. Uh, Corey is a really great practitioner, plus just thinks of things on such a high level, how he runs his practice, um, how he approach everything. Uh, this was when we were taking a tour through Omaha down to Kansas several years ago uh, when we all had a little bit more free time and travel was possible but such a great episode if you're a chiropractor or a chiropractic student or thinking about it Corey's a great example somebody worth checking out and following i know i personally learned a lot even having nothing directly to do with chiropractic and or owning my own clinic uh, but it still was fascinating just listen to so without further ado please enjoy this episode and we'll keep putting out some more top hits here in the near future plus some big things coming, just got to get a few more things set, and then we'll take it from there. Please enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Clinically Press. This is the first episode from our trip to Nebraska and Kansas that we took earlier this summer. In this episode, we are at Omaha Sport and Spine in Omaha, Nebraska, and are talking with Corey Campbell, I'm owner and operator, along with several other chiropractors. Corey is a big educator and on the board of the Motion Palpation Institute, has done all kinds of different things within the chiropractic realm, and is always looking to expand his practice with different ideas. He also shares with us lots of philosophies about patient care, how to run a clinic, and just generally being effective and leading a full career and life as well. Uh, we really enjoyed this discussion, and we hope you do as well. Uh, please check out all of the the episode as well as the show notes for links to everything that Corey mentions in this episode. Enjoy. Uh, welcome to this next episode of Clinically Pressed. We're here in Omaha with Corey Campbell and I'm um, going to talk a little shop today. Corey, a little side note, um, when I was in chiropractic school, I took my first seminar ever, outside seminar with Corey and kind of, he lit the fire. He is an awesome seminar and uh, has been kind of a mentor to me and, and so he does an awesome job and we're heading down here to Kansas City and it worked out well to stop in Omaha. So. We're here, happy to be here, and happy it worked out. So Covered about a quarter of the state of Iowa, which yeah. is good on the way over. <laughs> One way to describe it. There you go. <laughs> HP are out in full force. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, there was a lot of caps out today. Yeah. Apparently, so, I-80 is a hotbed. It is. <laughs> so a little background. Uh, Corey's uh, very functional-based uh, motion palpation is kind of my introduction to him, but do a lot of DNS and um, a lot of just functional stuff. So I don't know, do you want to just give a little bit of a background? Yeah, as far as just um, as far as my background from chiropractic school, um, it was largely motion palpation based then. We didn't have much of the DNS. We didn't have any DNS at the time. We didn't really have FMS or SFMA. So um, <clears throat> I was uh, introduced to motion palpation and try to because I was told not to go to a class because it ruined me for the rest of my career. So I signed up right away, yeah. <laughs> took there a class, um, nice. and uh, <clears throat> Dr. Elder was the instructor. 
and it was the first time that chiropractic actually made sense because I came from I came from a farm and ranch background originally, and then I was a medical technologist after getting out of school undergrad. So I came from a very black and white, yes or no, it's either you have cancer, you don't have cancer, you have this disease, or you don't have this disease, to this philosophy-based, dogmatic type of you know environment that we go from a philosophy class right into a spinal anatomy class, and nothing made any sense, like nothing jived. And so I was really struggling with chiropractic school early on. Somebody had, had mentioned uh, the motion palpation coming to, to uh, Kansas City. Again, I asked my instructor, my static palpation instructor, if I should take it. He told me no, so I signed up. And uh, it's the first time that there was actually some scientific rationale behind the profession. And there was a, a reference list, and there was references in the, in the presentation. And it just kind of lit a fire in me that, that still obviously burns today, because I teach for the Motion Palpation Institute. I'm uh, a member of the board now. Um, and so that's kind of my background. It was all motion palpation at the time. There was a little bit of ART. There was a little bit of grassing towards the end of my career in school. Um, and so those were the only classes we really had. And then um, after graduating, I, I started the rehab diplomate right away because through school I read a lot of McGill's work and Liebenson's books and, and anything I could get my hands on that was somewhat functionally based that made, you know, made my practice style you know, kind of develop it. Um, so I did the rehab diplomate right away after starting up a, a partner practice in Lincoln um, through the university, uh, through National University in Chicago, and through that I was able to go to Prague, and that's kind of how like the evolution of the practice style started. So it's it was very heavily rehab based early on. It's kind of starting to come full circle to where it's an integration of the things that we need to do based on what we find in our assessments, and that's how we that's kind of how we plug all these other things in that's out there now. So is, is there still kind of a dichotomy a little bit within the, the field of people who are a little bit maybe more traditional in their approach? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's like two, there's probably two or three different camps in the chiropractic profession, as Kyle can probably tell you, but um, there's one group that, you know, is almost all functionally based, and they don't really mix in like the skill part of it, like the palpation and the adjusting part, like the very essence of what makes chiropractors chiropractors, and then there's people that are just on that end of it where it's all palpation and adjust mostly just adjusting and philosophy. So there's, you know, we try to fill this middle ground with, you know, not just like a technician that's doing DNS and rehab and ART and Graston and just kind of like doing the technical stuff that they know, but like blending it together and using those tools where they're needed versus just have, being really good at a tool and just using it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we hope to be that middle ground that kind of, you know, the we always say that we're teaching to the 15%. You know, we hope to get to the 15% of the profession. We know that our, our audience is small because what we do doesn't have protocols necessarily. We don't have a bunch of algorithms that you can follow. It's not cookie cutter. Um, so we're kind of in that middle ground. We're not philo you know, philosophically based. We're also not just, you know, almost ashamed to be chiropractors and just doing rehab and soft tissue work. Like we want to, we're proud to be chiropractors, but we just need to learn how to integrate these other things or take the best of these other things and learn how to plug them into a patient base um, in a way that's beneficial for the patient and easy for the doc and kind of eliminates stress for both parties. It's well said. It's <laughs> a good way to describe it. I think that almost crosses over to a lot of different styles of training. Anytime a new training technique right. or a protocol or a, even an instrument comes about, it's like, mm, yeah. does it work? Is it just a right. current fad? And then 
how do we write programs and how to use it and not get too sucked in okay this is the end all be all yeah that's my favorite one with all of our athletic training students as soon as something new gets introduced or like we have somebody come in to talk about something then that's all it is for the next two weeks right like when they got learned about graston we wore those tools out for two weeks and (laughs) then it kind of started coming back a little bit right I know I had the same thing when I went to my first ART seminar. Exactly. Clearing off my injury report. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. And, and now just it's it. just figuring out when's the best. and Yeah. It's almost like how you said it. It almost makes too much sense, and that's why people can't get on board with it. Right. And everything, everything has, you can get. Yeah, everything has really valuable information, like mm-hmm. SFMA and FMS. Like, yeah. that's really good stuff. You know, especially from an assessment standpoint, DNS, you know, any three letters that you can put together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. MPI is one of them. So, you know, sure. we're, we're just as guilty uh, as anybody. But um, it, it all has good information. It's just, you know, we want the, we want the, the easy, the, the quick, the protocols, you know, how do I, what do I do here, what do I do here? And honestly, we just try to grab the best of these other things. Yeah. And we plug them in based off of our assessment. We use some of it as an assessment and then... Based on that assessment, we say, well, I think this person do really good with Graston yep. and a combination of manipulation and maybe some, some low-level rehab. Or maybe this person needs all stability and no myofascial work. Like, you, ha- you can't, you have to let your assessment guide your treatment, not Absolutely. just what you're introduced to and what, you're, what the new hot fat is. I it's a little bit harder, I think. Choice. Rather than not having that cookie cutter, it's a harder approach, maybe, to, to try to figure out, but it's... It's right. nice to take the best of all these things and yeah. combine it. Well, yeah. We just wrote about the art versus science and all this stuff. And right. for every thing you read that says this is the way to do it, there's two or three things that say eh, maybe not so much. And yeah, I think to pick and choose what's best for you. Yeah, and I was that way. Like when I started my career, like a lot of what I teach is based off of screw ups that I did early in practice. <laughs> yeah. I was the same guy that you know I thought I was going to fix everybody in four to six visits. Yep. And, and, you know, that just doesn't happen. Like, especially if you're truly a functional person, like, you can't change function in, in two weeks. Like, it's just, it's impossible for to do. How many duty right. cycles that right. set them up for that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're basically trying to create an environment that's going to allow for a more optimal adaptation to what you're trying to do so for that sure. their function, you know, increases. And you can't do that in four visits or six visits, you know. So I made that mistake. I was very evidence-based, like, to the point to where, like, I knew so much stuff that, I would like literally shut patients off by you know talking too much to them and not realizing that you know patient cares based on making some sort of a connection on a on a right brain level not a left brain level right. you can make them feel a difference you can make them you know even see a difference or feel different then you kind of have then you kind of have some repertoire with that patient you have some trust built in and you know, there is the hardcore evidence-based people that only do what's out there, you know, the evidence-based practice, best practices, whatever. But there's a middle ground. There's things that I do that, and changes that I make that I can't explain necessarily. <laughs> I could probably rationalize it to some extent. And so, you know, 13 years of practice has definitely humbled me and made me realize that, honestly, like, if you just let patients know that you care and they don't know how good you are, like, that's the biggest compliment you can actually have is that you've got a way to integrate all these other cool things in a way that's the best thing for the patient and they don't really even know how much you know or how good mm-hmm. or how many hours you put in to be that way. Like that's my goal is to have people like me and, and appreciate and respect what I do clinically but not know like all the ins and outs and right. all the hours and stuff that I've done. So that's like the biggest compliment I think you can get as a clinician. That's pretty cool. Or not know that you 
the, all that you know for the, I think you said 13 seminars you've taught since the beginning of the year, right, basically. Yes, I mean, yeah, January, right. It's, yeah, I, you know, but my patients think it's cool that I teach, and, you know, they definitely, I, but I don't go in-depth, you know, with my patients the way I do with my students and docs that I teach to. Uh, they think, they, but they do think it's cool that, you know, I'm constantly out there trying to learn stuff, and, and there's times when, you know, I don't have all the answers, and, and and I'm I'm okay with that now. I wasn't okay with that ten years ago. You know, so. Yep. I think sometimes <laughs> not knowing too kind of drives me, anyways, to to know more and to you know to try to figure it out and be like, okay, well, just having a bigger yeah, toolbox, exactly, right, a different point of view. Yeah, and I think we get, you know, when I was taking classes through MPI, um, you know, there was a bit of ego, and I think there's ego in some of the, all the classes, you know, to some extent, like, their, their way is kind of the, the best way, and, you know, like, I'm, I've done, we've kind of just gotten rid of all that criticizing and that ego stuff in the MPI world, because we know that there's a lot of good stuff in FMS and DNS, and, I mean, we got an instructor that teaches for DNS and Dr. Winchester, so we incorporate all the good things that we get in those classes, and we don't badmouth anybody anymore, because really it's about... You know, it's about building your practice the way you want it and having a practice model that you're comfortable with and you can master, um, but realizing that it's going to constantly evolve because you should, you know, I'm a firm believer in not just playing to your strengths, but if you want to you, you, you practice that looks this way, there's things that you don't know that you're going to have to go out and learn and you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone and you're going to have to just admit that there's a better way of doing it than how you were doing it. And, like, I think that's what makes this such a cool model. It's so fluid, and it's constantly challenging. Um, we're just kind of in the, in the phases of in, we're going to implement some FMS and more of the SFMA, like, assessment part because that's something that we just don't do a great job of, and it's something that we think has value. Mm -hmm. And so anything that we think is, is valuable from an assessment or treatment standpoint, like, we're going to find out, a, we're going to find a way to use it, and that's kind of, that's why it's nice to have Dr. Peters here and Dr. Eisenmenger. we got, you know, different different views and different uh, different strengths and weaknesses but you know and it, it helps me because there's things that I can get better at or there's, there's new things that I can learn and that's like I think that's cool like versus just playing to your strengths and being steadfast and planting your flag in the ground saying this is the only way to do it. So anyways, plus the information there's always new research coming out yeah. and finding more and more out and yeah. I think that's kind of cool yeah. too. When I first started teaching what's called the LDMA and upper dynamic movement assessment classes now our rehab classes in MPI we were teaching transverse abdominus contractions you know like isolating those things and <laughs> swelling yeah. multifidus like just yeah you're just completely wasting our time. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm halfway through the list of students that I've called back and apologized <laughs> to for, for teaching them something that Probably was just a huge time suck, you know, sure. and didn't really do much. But that's what we knew at the time, and right. now we know differently. You know, we, we know that it's not isolated muscle contractions; it's movements and it, it's global global yeah. activation and and getting the whole shoulder girdle, the whole hip girdle, or the respiratory diaphragm and all those muscles that push against that interabdominal pressure. Like now we know, like we know more than we did, and so we've changed all of that. And sure. We're cool with changing that. Yeah. I was more than happy to not teach that stuff anymore. I'm sure you taught them a lot of good, though, too, along the way. I hope so. I don't know. Yeah. I hope it outweighed the, the... I hate that feeling, too. Like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't believe I used to tell people some right. of this stuff. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Geez, in the nutrition world, where it just <laughs> seems to change daily on what's the next right. thing right. or what's the next big supplement that's going to fix everybody. Yeah. Right. Right. 
that goes back and forth too. That was me, I think. No, Siri, what are you doing here? <laughs> Get a chip in there. Uh, I think that's a good transition to so like the global uh, aspect that you talk about and mm-hmm. DNS we've mentioned a little bit. Um, so how do you incorporate that into what you do here? Obviously, you know you you've got um, a lot of people that want to see you, and I'm sure you could spend probably an hour plus with each individual patient. But how do you kind of condense that down? I guess. Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. There is how do you how do you take all this really cool information? Like when I went through the rehab discipline, it was 300 hours, it was two and a half years worth, and every class was had great information, but if you were to just do what they told you to do in a class, you'd be spending 45 minutes with the patient. And financially, like that just doesn't work. Like you just can't do it. You can, I suppose you can do it, but it, you'd have to be so high priced that you know, you'd have, you have a very select group of people and it would take a long time to build. So the way we do it here, um, I have 15 minute follow-ups, 45 minute exams, so I have long, longer exams to because I want to really figure out what's going to work for the person so um, we use DNS as part of our assessment and obviously uh, a large part of what we do from an exercise base especially like entry-level rehab um, respiration retraining isometric core stabilization um, isometric shoulder and hip girdles you know those kinds of things based on DNS principles because that seems to be the kind of the best way to get things started and then you can go to more of the functional you know, like the Gary Gray triplanar lunging and those kinds of things, you know, six or seven or eight weeks down the road when they're ready for it. But you have to kind of build the foundation first. So we use DNS as an assessment tool and then a lot of the entry-level exercise. And sometimes, like, we don't even get outside of that entry-level stuff because they're working with trainers and we're just keeping the foundation solid and they're doing all the other work, which is kind of what we do. So do you do that rehab with them in-house, or do you refer in, out to in-house. certain... Yeah, in-house. Is that you doing it, or do you have yeah, right now, trainers with you? Yeah, right now, we have, it's just us right now, but ultimately, like, that's the model we're moving to. So, again, that's part of the constantly trying to, you know, grow and change. Um, ultimately, we'd like to have a trainer in here that would do that. Like, that's how we would want to do it. We would, mm-hmm. we would train him in the DNS principles, the DNS exercise classes, those kinds of things, and then he would do, because it seems like the DNS is... Exercise is kind of the best way to get things going, and patients respond to it well. It's easy for them to understand. It's a lot of cueing, so it's a lot of feeling versus, you know, mechanistic movements that don't really, you know, we don't move that way typically. Um, And so ultimately, like, that's what we would like to have, something that Dr. Winchester has been, you know, I've been here for four years. Prior to this, I was in a large multidisciplinary orthopedic spine surgery group. Um, And so I had physical therapist there that could also do that but now we're kind of in that building process so over the next two years or so we'd like to ultimately have like that here in-house mm-hmm. and then offer even you know like DNS exercise class things here and those kinds of things and um, athletic injury prevention programs and things like that like that's where we're kind of migrating towards taking notes over here. <laughs> yeah. like you say your right. wheel should it's, be it's as far as a treatment standpoint though for what I do with DNS like we were trained classically when it's called reflex locomotion before mm-hmm. it was even called DNS because I was in Prague in 2004 with uh, with Pavel Kolaj and all the, the whole group, the Yonda camps, nice. the Bruger camps. The, I wondered if that's yeah. where you were going with the global thing. Yeah. To go into Prague. <laughs> yeah. Pun yeah. Different, oh, different type of global. global. Yeah. That's, I was like, oh, maybe yeah. he's going that way. So I know the DNS now is more exercise based and it's great. Like, I love the exercise and I love the way they have it laid out. It was very scattered when I took it. So it was more reflex activation when I took it. So I use that as a tool to kind of get things more 
normal from a function standpoint. So if you can't turn off erectors, or if you just can't turn this muscle off, mm -hmm. or if they can't turn on the glute medius, like I'll use the reflex stuff. I'll use a couple minutes of that to get the reaction I want, get the muscles to, to fire, um, get the patient to feel it, which is important that they make that neurological connection so that when they do an exercise, they can I, they can reproduce that they feeling, which is important. Um, that's one of collages big points that he used to make is they you know if you're doing a reflex activation of the diaphragm and you start to see it but they can't feel it like you've only done like half of your job so you've got to have them make some sort of connection and so that's how I use it I'll use a couple of minutes two three minutes of DNS to turn on muscles or to turn off muscles and then uh, incorporate the myofascial work or the post isometric work or whatever and then the, obviously the, the palp and adjust part um, you just at the end of your assessment, your 45-minute assessment, you should be able to go back and highlight those major findings and know what joints need to be worked on, know what muscles need to be worked on, know what needs to be turned on, and the best ways to kind of attack that. And you don't always know the best ways. That's why you need to give yourself three to four weeks to figure that out. Um, but, you know, that's how I use it. And so I'm very efficient. So in 15 minutes, I can get a lot of work done. Nice. And, then, and then they kind of progress, and we, we change the treatment plan as it goes along. Great. So what's that treatment plan? Is that selecting exercises that try to overcome some of those weaknesses or do you have to do more isolated stuff before they can even do those exercises right. or movement patterns? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh. Right. So I just had a patient here that comes, she's been coming to see me for a while. She's got some new complaints, classic thoracic outlet stuff. She's always had some scapular instability. Um, like we had to restart with her. So today we did like some scaling releases, worked on the, the cervical thoracic extension problems that she's had. Um, and then we went back to square one with some DNS scap rehab, like which I just finished up with her. And it was all based just on quick exams. And so everybody's a little bit different. But yeah, you gotta, you got to find, you know, what is their major issue? Is it like if they got so much muscle tension, it's not going to do any good to, to try to turn that muscle tension off through exercise. Like you're better off doing something that's going to affect the muscle tension and give that two to three weeks to work before you even plug in any exercise. So you kind of have to kind of have to let the person's, you know, like your assessment guide what happens, and then you almost have to assess by treatment, like what's working for this person, what's not working for this person. Give yourself two weeks and say, hey, are we making a difference, or can you feel a difference? Can have you change trigger points? Have you changed, uh, like, their graphesthesia awareness? If you draw letters and numbers on their back when they're face down, they can't tell you what they are. That's usually indications of long-standing dysfunction or chronic restrictions. Like those things should change. Things that they can't necessarily cheat on, you know. So yeah. you, you got to have in in treatment audits and then two-week audits that kind of guide you whether you're doing the right things or not. So that's how I kind of tell. Like I I audit constantly. Am I changing this trigger point pattern? Am I changing, you know, am I changing the joint motion? Am I changing the muscle tonicity? Am I changing the the neurological responses? So that, hyperreflexia is not normal. If, if, if you're treating people the right way, like you should normalize reflexes, you should normalize graphesthesia sense, like those things should change if you're doing the right things. And that's really quick, easy ways to make, make some clinical audit, audits that are, they're either there or they're not. Either you're doing the wrong thing or you're not doing the right, you're doing the right thing. So there's no cheating it. And I like that. Like I, I like to hold myself accountable. Because we kind of talked about that, almost a recurrent theme with athletes who have mobility restrictions or kind of lingering issues but you still need to keep them in prime condition to compete right. and get that training effect it's like how do you get the best of both worlds and address some of those issues but at the same time 
yeah. still get them bigger, stronger, faster. Right. Right. Yeah, and with your high-level athletes, um, you know, I don't see a ton of high-level athletes here. I see a lot of well, higher-level runners, if anything. Um, but yeah, with your athletes, you, that's a that's a tough balance. And so, like our standpoint here is that, you know, we have functional audits and things like that. That you know, if they can do these things functionally, pain-free, then like the performance stuff, like they can run with that. That's kind of our 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 take on that. And we can help them with you know, kind of preparing for movement. Um, Dr. Winchester works with the Cardinals, and so I've learned a lot from him as far as like what he has his throwers go through prior to their warm-ups even. So he basically primes the neurological pumps and the stabilization pumps through various exercises, which is a really cool way to incorporate you know, with your athletes, it's a, and it's, they love it. It's, it's like a warm-up, and so those are some things that we've, that we've started to use. Hmm. That's pretty cool. We started to switch to that, and we're gonna try and roll it out more this year uh, implementing more FMS, but then going through and building that right into their workout program. Right. So we started following this Exos style mm -hmm. performance. Right. Yeah. So building some of this stuff into their pillar prep and their movement prep, right. it's no longer a warm up. Right. And then into their kind of complementary exercises as they're working through that's their actual primary and right. secondary movements. Yeah, and that's a perfect. And then way they to don't do have it. to come in and see us later to do all that stuff. We don't stretch at the end of a workout. You've already done all of it right. in your workout. You're right. done. Right. I think they look at it differently. Get your recovery too, and then go they, home. Right. If they see warm up, then they think, well, sometimes maybe they don't want to do it. But if it's actually built into the program, yep. I think it's it's yeah. a lot. Yeah. They just view it differently. Oh, almost. absolutely. And you got to play with that too. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. That's where people, I think, in the general fitness industry just falls so short is they they ignore all that other stuff where if they would just integrate it into their actual you know hour workout time that you have well you keep the person moving too right. there's no sitting still like our athletes never stop moving unless they've got to wait to get on to their next exercise because the guy before them is still finishing it yeah, that's right. the only time they wait yeah the fitness so. industry is no different than any other industry like our <laughs> chiropractic industry you know you've got a handful of groups like you guys that definitely want to like master your your craft and then you got a handful of people that are in it to do boot camps and make money and, yeah. and to crush people so it's no different than, <laughs> it's it's no different you know and we sometimes it's it's that way in the medical profession it's that way in the physical therapy profession it doesn't change much so yeah, yeah. hopefully heading in the right direction right no matter what anyway i just think we have more information out there Available, it, the assimilation part is where we're still figuring it out. I yeah. think is is kind of the thing is that we're, I think we're you know with the EXO things. Like, yeah. I think we're on the right track. I think that it's just going to continue to improve, and then just a matter of are people going to take time to really learn it and and understand the nuts and bolts of what you're doing and how and why you're doing it, and and that's you know I think that's where DNS, FMS, MPI, like these other groups, mm -hmm. like I think they just need to kind of. You know, play nice together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like you were saying, just the egos within professions, but then the egos within, like, right. the interprofessional relationship. Oh, for sure. And nobody wants to check their ego at the door. No. And that's where, you know, I've found, like, especially with the Exos one, is, like, it's all in that building. Right. I mean, everybody knows kind of their role, but there's overlap, and pe they're all smart people, and they all understand that. And right, as long as they're going to work together. Page, yeah. you know, OPEX is another one that does a good job in your profession, I think. Because you never want to be, I was, you always want somebody smarter than you in some area. Absolutely. Around yeah. you. Yeah. Nutrition, all, right. a lot of all the functional things that you do, that, you oh, know, yeah. the breathing and stuff. Yeah. I don't really know exactly what I bring to the table with that, but <laughs> I don't have my niche necessarily, but. Humor. 
There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to, anyway. Yeah, that's right. No. Now you're right, though. Oh, yeah. You, I think, yeah. It's, Be well-rounded. You know, everybody, you got a little bit of knowledge of everything, but you got to have somebody that that's their thing. Right. Right. And, just be good with that. Yeah, Put your I have mentors in. now. Like I use Mark King as my business and kind of just my life coach. <laughs> <That's kind laughs> of, uh, David Seaman is my go-to for nutrition. You know, from a technical standpoint, um, I'm lucky enough to be able to speak with you know, some really high-level PTs and some other instructors. And so, yeah, you do. You just have to have people that that push you. You know, and once you think you have it mastered, then you're kind of on the downhill slope oh, yeah. in the wrong direction. Exactly. So that's Learn that lesson on few too many times. So when you do all this, uh, the, you know, the seminars and everything, what's your favorite thing to just go and teach Oh, and talk about? Gosh, that's, that's kind of a, that's a loaded question there. It is. Um, <laughs> I would say if I had to rank the, the, my favorite classes as far as teaching, like I, I love teaching the our MPI spine class, like the palp and adjust, like the entry level. This is how a joint works. This is... This is how you assess it, and this is how you treat it. Like I love that part. That's still my favorite part of my treatment is being able to palpate and adjust. One um, of the best adjusters ever, right here. So, actually, yeah. And I don't. And that's the thing that you know I don't. The old docs give too much credence to you know the power of the adjustment, and the new the new crop I think they don't quite appreciate like the power of it. Brush yeah, under the rug a little I bit. I think part of it is, is because they think it's more just like a technical thing that you do, um, and don't really give the credence to like the craft part of it like it's not the adjustment that is is the hard part it's the big old find out where you need to apply the adjustment and what direction what planes of motion you need to be able to affect the joint and change those kinds of things and then like the palpation part of it so I think that's probably my favorite class to teach my second favorite is the upper because I, I love like the intricacies of the shoulder and respiration and the first rib and those kinds of things. Like oh, I, I really like, I like that class too. So it's kind of a one and one A um, That's cool. part of it. But I, we've come full circle and I've definitely come full circle in my career to, to a point to where like we, I don't think the new group of students coming out that's so functionally based gives enough credence to how difficult palpation and adjusting, you know, the adjusting part, yes, it's difficult, but the palpation part, like I don't think they realize the diagnostic capabilities that we have right here in our hands. And you know, being able to palpate muscles and joints can cut down a lot of times on your treatments, but it really like creates that connection with your patient, like really makes them know that you're you're in the right spot. Like when you can grab a trigger point and recreate some issues in their hand, or you can, you know, you can you can make them feel a restriction. Like that's it's got a lot of power just in like the the the, the the relationship between you and your patient like that makes that patient very comfortable with you makes them realize that they're in the right spot and you've got immediate buy-in so if you can't palpate and adjust in our profession in my opinion and you're not an absolute you know absolutely try to master that craft every single day in some way then it's harder to get the buy-in from the patient to do some of these other things like if you're just holding points and getting muscles to react like patients yeah, it's a, that's a hard buy-in. They're looking do for more a, a than a bunch that. of exercise and do a bunch of DNS work versus, you know, give it two weeks where you just do the, the palp and adjust and some muscle work, and, and then then you start to integrate these things. I think you have, I think they would have much better success building a practice that's sustainable, that has patients that are going to be lifelong patients, which I don't think is a bad thing in our profession. I, you don't have to see you every single week for the rest of their life, but when they need somebody to get them back to where they're, you know, where they want to be, then you should be the guy they go to versus their medical doctor. So I don't think 
having lifelong patience is I think that should be our goal. For and sure. I think one of the ways to do that is being an absolute master at what you do. So do you see, or would you say that um, if someone is a, you know, just a fantastic at their palpation skills, that if they're a really good palpator, that the adjustment kind of just follows along with oh, that? absolutely. I mean, if you can palpate, if you can feel it, the yeah. adjustment just kind of follows along with yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's, you know, the, the two big things you have to have to be a great adjuster is, is palpation skills and speed. And so those two things you can work speed on. Like hard. you can, that's the hard part. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the motor development. Speed, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, that's an interesting one. Right, it's, uh, it's, it's what McGill talks about with his MMA guys. It's pulsing, it's, uh, you know, it's being stable and being relaxed and being able to contract and relax. And then, you, you know, those, those are like the same concepts that you see across, across most ballistic sports. It's the same thing. But yeah, if you're a good palpator, you know where the joint's restricted, you know what axes the rotation restricted, and so you just put the patient in the most comfortable position to affect that axis and everything kind of falls into place. And then you can do, you know, circus tricks and then maze your, <laughs> your fellow colleagues and things like that with pinky adjustments and elbow adjustments. But it's all based on the palpation. If you can palpate, you can pretty much plug in whatever you want and just be fast. So those are the two things you have to that you have to be you know, to be a great adjuster is your palpation skills. And it's something that I still work on. Like, I'm still tweaking things, you know, constantly because the being able to assess the joints a lot harder than I think we even get from, you know, some of the schools. Like, it's not an easy thing to do. And it's it's different for everybody. You're, you're built differently than I am, and I'm going to move different than you are. And so it takes a while to kind of figure out what, you know, how to assess those joints the best way. Sure. And then you get people like Andy in there that yeah, are yeah. difficult. Big patients, patient. or yeah, right. yeah, right. You talked about like lifelong patience, which I think is awesome. No, and we've talked about this a little bit, and it got brought up on another podcast that I was listening to of like insurance potentially rolling over and almost going to a preventative aspect. Do you do anything with that, or have patients like that? That it's not necessarily they've got anything wrong, or something's killing them, but they still come in just to make sure everything's. Yeah, I do. Going I mean, well. I have, I have a few patients that are that way. Um, in this that in this practice, you don't see it as much. Prevent, or chiropractic might end up going because I know that's something that you've talked about trying to go more functional medicine, where it could almost be that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we've talked about it as well, just with doing. I think it's testing kind of, and biometrics and different things right. just throughout the year. I think it's kind of morphing into that anyway because people don't want to go. Like, people would rather come to somebody that offers, like, a spectrum conservative care thing. So it's not like they're coming in every six weeks just because. Mm -hmm. I do have a few patients like that, but they're usually older patients that just kind of, like, that's what helps them manage their issues. Like, I'm not going to change a retroverted hip, but every six weeks or so they come in and I do the best I can to get some hip mobility, things like that restored. But I think it's kind of morphing into that. Like, the people are more apt to go conservative care route because we're less expensive than if you go to your medical doctor and get the you know, the protocol of an anti-inflammatory muscle relaxer, and then if that doesn't work, like some sort of opioid medication, you know. Um, and some plus, it's, right plus, yeah. <laughs> plus it's cheaper because, you know, now with managed care, like medical doctors or even family practice, they're increasing, like, their their assessment rates because that's the only way they can kind of stay afloat. I mean, chiropractors are used to not getting paid much. So, we're, <laughs> we're like, we figured it out a few years ago, so yeah. we're kind of ahead of the curve yeah. there, so... So I think it's morphing into that just by the nature of the business, honestly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Sounds like that's going to be a huge market in like 10 years. 
Right. Just with all the insurance stuff that's already happening. Right. You're seeing it already with, like, concierge medical care and those kind of mm-hmm. things. Yeah. You're starting to see that. Yeah. I know. One of my favorite, we were just talking about this one, too, is, you know, even, like, looking at, like, doing labs. Like, if you change your oil more often than you ch- check your own blood work. Oh, and most people do. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah for I, sure. I don't know. The last yeah. time I've, I've never had, like, a full right. blood thing. Right. I don't even know. Like, and the only one I know is going to cost me 600 bucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> The oil chain is only 40. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. But I mean, it's just, I think everything's kind of changing that way, you know, with the, the information we have about nutrition, the information we have about even just things like meditation and relaxation oh, yeah. techniques and, you know, the conservative care route. Like, I think people are, I think we're more mindful of, of a group of people anyway. I think we have more, more information, we're more mindful of of doing things more naturally now. So I think sure. we're in a really good position, honestly. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm optimistic about the profession um, just in general because of that um, and some, some other reasons. But, I mean, that's, I think, I think we're in a good position for it. We really are. Not only just doing things more naturally, but more treating the problem and not just managing symptoms. Right, like, right. Not just hosing it down with an anti-inflammatory right. injection like or that. something, you know. So, it down. Right. Yeah, <laughs> or exactly. some sort of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I think more not, people are starting to realize the benefits of doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And some patients come in and they've gone that route for a period of time and it's not working for them and maybe they're looking for, an, for right. another answer and be like, oh, yeah. maybe this isn't the way we should go about it. Right, right. Which is good. As as yeah, and I think there's a pocket of, of chiropractors and trainers and people like that that we really need to kind of shout from the mountaintops that, you know, like this, these people can help you in a variety of different ways you don't even know about. Like, yeah. And so, you know, we kind of have to kind of education know. is such a hard it, thing. It is. It's to get people to buy into, like, you can move better. Right. Or maybe you should just stand, how that affects stand a little bit more instead of sitting in your desk for eight hours a day. Or just how... You know, yeah, you know that. I mean, simply uh, eating better and changing, changing things. food, uh, lifestyle habits, and, and, and food choices like that's that, there's an emotional attachment oh. to food that's very hard to break through. Yeah. Oh, we've just even beaten and tried to beat into people's head just the chain. Like, don't believe the scale. Like, you got to figure out how to do body comp. You have to because right. the scales might not tell you what it is actually happening. Look how long it's changed to change the mindset of the old food pyramid. Like oh, yeah. what David Seaman calls the death pyramid. Yeah. Like it's yeah. backwards of what it should be, you know. And yeah, we now they kind of the changed some things, you know, in that. But it's taken a good decade or longer to even just like, just people still think the food pyramid is, is you know, what we should be doing. And right. So it's, it's, it just takes time. And it's like Mark says, like if you, you know, if you're going to implement a system into your office, like you've got to, you got to repeat it. Over and over and mm-hmm. over again. You got to have weekly meetings and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And that's that's so it makes where, it a system. That's kind yeah. of where we're at. You just have to you have to constantly be people over the heads with it. So have you seen that South Park? I was just going to ask the, that. Yes. The, <laughs> the it's upside yes. down. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think we shared that one time because it was hilarious. We talked about it in my nutrition yes. class. All yes, time. that's great. Well, I saw the FDA just changed their nutrition facts panel for the first time ever. I think, and that's it. I know you had mentioned about on our politics. supplement episode about creatine. I think something really was saying vitamin D is not going to be on it. Yeah, vitamin D is. It shows like your percentage of uh-huh. daily intake, and then it now is bigger and bolder. The calorie amounts in there, and some of the other things have changed. But right. I mean, first time ever that those have been addressed, and I think they were developed in like the fifties. Wow. Know? So, right. Yeah. 
I mean, we're drowning in information, and you know, if somebody just needs to throw the rest of the public a lifeline on how to, you know, how to implement it and how yeah. to integrate it, and getting it changed at the federal level is tough because oh, there's a lot of money in politics. Money and hoops that you got to jump right. through. Right. That is tough. And unfortunately, that drives other decisions like school lunch programs are based off of some of those policies mm -hmm. that are developed at the top oh, yeah. level. And so that's what people are learning through, through it, too. Yeah, yeah. 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 and you develop Vicious those eating cycle. patterns at that age, and no yep. wonder we have an obesity epidemic on our hands. Right, right. Yeah. Sad. Well, do you guys have any other questions, or should we get into. We can get into the big the three. Press yeah, ones. probably should. It's actually four, so we got to stop saying three. Oh, <laughs> <right>. yeah. <laughs> got to change it. Can't yeah. count. Well, do, what's you, uh, do you remember any of them? I know one. Okay. I can never remember. Yeah, whatever. Um, it's baseball, I mean, that's that's not that bad. Right, Mendoza line. You're, you're yeah. good. So uh, what's uh, an influential purchase for $100 or less? Could be health, fitness, whatever related. Yeah, so I saw the question. Um, also, there's two parts. Like, under $100 in the rehab world, it, the, the, your best bang for your buck are the resistance loops, the pre-made loops. Like, that's, we use those loops all the time, those little yellow bands. Oh, yeah, yeah. That are little mini bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah mini bands, for mini sure. Bands. Well under 100 too. Well yeah. under 100 yeah. yeah, you can get a pack of 10 for, you know, 10 bucks or whatever it is. So, like, the biggest bang for your buck in, in the rehab world is that. Um, OPTP has box sales of foam rollers. You can get under 100 bucks. You can get six of them for you know 50 bucks. Like that's a that's another really big. The purchase. foam roller shows up again. That's yeah, right. it's a yeah. pretty common one. And then exercise ball. So I would say like those three things. There really isn't much you can't you can't modify and make work. For sure. I, from a fitness standpoint, I would say like the heavy the the heavy loops, the heavy resistance bands. Like those are um, very. Um, there's a couple of them hanging up there. Yeah. The home TRX units are, are, yep. are really good. Utilize I'm kind of a body a weight kind of guy. Like I think you can get a lot done with For sure. that. Um, and the exercise ball, again, you can do a lot with that too. So that's all well within the 100, 100, right. 100 bucks. Yeah. We are just talking about the Tim Ferriss podcast that he just had uh, with the gymnastics. gymnastics bodies. Yeah, talking yeah. about former Olympic coach. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think there isn't too much you can't get done with those three things. Nice. Yeah. So what is something that you might believe that others may not? Gosh. You can be within this world <laughs> yeah. or your other world. AJ's yeah. is always I, believing in aliens. So. Yeah, it's okay. You know, I was an X-Files guy. There you, there you go. go. There you go. Um, Coming back. That's right. They are excited about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I read that question. That's an interesting question. I, I don't know if it's so much that I something I believe that other people don't believe, um, but I, as far as like clinically, I believe that presence has power. Like if you're truly present with a patient in that 15 minutes and you're really like focused on how you can help them, what kind of vibes you're picking up, are they negative that day, are they positive that day? Like I think presence has a huge power. And so kind of our motto, mantra here from as far as clinicians go is, you know, the 15 minutes or the 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever the patients are here, like it's their time. Like we're not worried about texting or what emails or what classes oh, I got to get onto it. You know, with like my students. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I got a lot on my plate with you know four kids and you know family and teaching classes and running a practice and but when I'm in the clinic and the in that treatment room and the doors closed or even the doors open like that's their I try to make that the best 15 minutes of their day, and so I really believe that like presence has power and and you know. 
I have days that I don't necessarily always follow up with that, and I don't beat myself about that. But I, that's one of the things I just I'm kind of I'm kind of passionate about. Like I think the the hard thing for students is that they have to go from an environment where it's all about them into an environment where it should be all about the patient, and that's a really hard switch to to trip. Um, and it just took me a while to kind of figure that out, that it's not about me. It's about me being really good at what I do and then transferring that to the patient to kind of best help them. And so I really believe the only way you can do that is to truly be present, you know, with that patient. Just kind of try to pick up on what they're going through, you know, in that, in that day. I like that. Yeah, so that's one of the things. Um, the other thing I believe in, <clears throat> we kind of already touched on, is like I don't think we've even, most people, most docs don't, realize the potential they have right there in their hands as far as like a diagnostic capability and as from a treatment healing standpoint like I think most docs are scratching like 10 or 15 20 percent of their potential as far as like diagnostic capabilities with your hands and like healing capabilities like you can do a lot with your hands that I think we we truly don't give enough credence to um, that's and I, I think that young docs and, and kind of the new the newer docs that are coming out like I I truly believe that they they don't give themselves enough credit to figure things out and that if they remain persistent with whatever it is they want to do in practice and how they want their model I think people quit too early these days like I really believe that there's a lot to having grit and persistence and it's not about being the smartest guy or the strongest guy or the smartest gal or or you know having you know the best location. I think it's truly about knowing exactly what you want and, you and having the persistence to doing it. Yeah, and yes. and and just realize that you know if there's no struggle, there's no progress. Like those are the two recurring themes in all of life. You can't have one without the other, and you just kind of have to relish the struggle. I think people quit too early. That's good. What's what's the success if you didn't struggle too? You're not gonna really right, savor right. it as much either. No, easy never made great. Yeah. <laughs> Never. So you gotta, you gotta. Well, I mean, anybody that works so out. So many one-liners on that, <laughs> that last bit that I can't wait to use again. Like a bumper sticker. Yeah. That's, that's what that's what I do. I just sit around and write stuff. There you go. <laughs> Instead of paying attention to my patient, like I yeah. Just, I was like, yeah, that's, that's all. Know, I, gotta I gotta write that down yeah, real quick. I gotta put that in my notes on my phone. Give me a second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the professors we work with, every once in a while, like he'll show up. I was like, "Where'd you come with that?" He goes, "I don't know. I just said it. Did you write it down? Because I won't remember." <laughs> right, right. Going on the the presence thing too. I, the power of now. I think that's one of my favorite books. Yeah, too. absolutely. I, I, I really like that. I think it is yeah. important. I have it on audiobook, and I revisit it about once every other month. So, do you really? Well, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. yeah, that and Wayne Dyer's Manifest Your Destiny yes. and The Charge by Brendan Burchard. Like those are three absolute must-haves. The charge. I haven't read that yeah, one. You have to. I like your manifesto. We should throw book recommendations there you at go. the end. We really should. Yeah, just you're right. We should. Relatively average. Yeah, I think anything Wayne Dyer. Five questions now. Right. Yeah, getting exactly. busy. There you go. Created something new now. That's right. right. <laughs> Tim Ferriss. Said, These are rapid fire, but they don't have to be rapid answers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so then the other one, one of the other two, any take home tips or like an ask that you would have for people that would watch this, like if you give them something. Right, so as far as to like... apply to their life. Eat their Wheaties. Right. Um, from really? a clinical standpoint, <laughs> you know, from a clinical standpoint, like three tips I would give new docs coming out is to, um, especially if they're going to, whether they're starting their practice or whether they're going mm -hmm. to an associateship, like they need to write down what it is that they 
ultimately like their goals. They need to write those down. Like literally take a pen out. Those old things, those antique things we call pens <laughs> and paper and Don't actually write it out. And then the other thing I would say one of the biggest tips I ever got is to is to schedule your days and your weeks, not your years. And literally write things into your schedule that you're going to stop whatever it is that you're doing and you're going to do that thing, whether it's becoming a better adjuster, better palpator, whether it's getting out and doing some marketing events, whether it's learning how to do a YouTube presentation, like literally write it into your calendar and your agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, the studies show that all the successful people, they, they're all persistent for one thing, but they're all very, um, very disciplined in scheduling like their changes and their progress. And so they literally, I'm going to read this book this week and they write it into their into their schedule and they they do that like they you know so I think scheduling your days and your weeks versus your months and your years like I think that's one of the things that really helped me you know kind of just stay to task because it's easy get to stuff done yeah, instead of have the right. ambition the other should, thing is not to dwell on the numbers. We need to do that a little yeah. bit. We need right. more of that. We're going to do this this summer. We all we all do. I mean, I, I say that, and I, I fall short, too, so I always have to kind of go back and, and revisit sure. those things. But, um, yeah, you gotta, we have to give ourselves a break every now and then. But, um, and the other thing is not to, like, dwell on numbers. Like, if from, a, from a patient standpoint, like, you know, you, you, it's easy to look at the numbers and get really kind of depressed. Instead of doing that, like, literally go out and, Go meet people, and you know, referral-based practices is all about building relationships, mm -hmm. not about just hitting as many different pockets of people as you can. Like you, once you find those people that you kind of jive with, then you have to constantly kind of like nourish that relationship and and and, and kind of become friends with them and you know, revisit those kinds of things. Sure. That's how you build practices, and instead of like instead of dwelling on the numbers um, and looking at like what your stats are for this week, like. Just don't even look at it. Go out and do something that's going to make your next week's stats look better, you know, and, and just forget about uh, what, what, the, what the practice stats say. You know, you can revisit those in a month or something, but if you're sitting there dwelling on them, like, it just creates a negative environment. Sure. It just leads to, to, to a stagnant practice. And so um, not dwelling on those things and, and scheduling things into your, into your open spots so that you're out either becoming a better businessman, a better doctor, or a better marketer, or whatever, build that into your day instead of instead of beating your head on why there's no patients there. Um, and then the other thing I would say is is to develop systems. Like everything should have a system except for patient care. Yeah. And and kind of stay to that system and hone it and change it. Obviously, but um, that's one of the things I learned from Mark is to. Even if you're not busy, like practice like you're busy. Cluster work, you know, look early so that you can practice your system so that when you do get busy, like everything's kind of in place and you're you're ready to go. Or if you're a busy doc now, like maybe you need to change your systems. But everything should have a system from the time the patient walks in the door to the time they leave except for their care. Those are the three things I would say. It's like Tim Ferriss, he says, you know, being effective as well as being efficient, you know, yeah. doing both. I yeah. think that ties into the system yeah, thing. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> the amount we reference him, we really gotta try and figure out how to talk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. About we'll send him a shirt. There you yeah, go. there you go. And a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last one I have is, you know, what information would you go back to tell yourself, either in training or education, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago, whatever it may be, and kind of if you could like place where you were at when you would give yourself that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no yeah, my my career history is pretty interesting. It's it's about as ADD as you can get. So, <laughs> uh, ten years ago, I would have just been starting um, 
I started a partner practice in Lincoln initially, okay. and then I transitioned to this multidisciplinary facility. Yeah. So I was the only chiropractor in this in the state, or even maybe a two-state region that was in a large facility like this. Okay. So I was just starting, um, you know, that practice within the the spine center, which was at the time seven orthopedic spine surgeons, three PTs, two physiatrists, and a staff of about seventy. So. I was the lone chiropractor. There was a brace guy there that did bracing and those yep. kinds of things. So we were kind of the two oddball guys. <laughs> um, but I guess if I were to go back and, and and if anything would be what I just talked about was would be to learn how to, even though I wasn't horribly busy at the beginning, like I felt like I was starting over, like I would learn, I would tell myself that I need to, to be more disciplined in my approach to building a practice gotcha. and not just rely on seven guys to feed you because that wasn't necessarily like their their whole idea of, you know, they just wanted to have somebody there that they could, you know, that was the token chiropractor say, oh, yeah, we have <laughs> everything, you know, in mm-hmm. one I gotcha. versus, you know, kind of feed my practice. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, 10 years ago, I was still kind of in that, I could get everybody better in six visits, and I was in that mode still kind of, uh, kind of coming out of it, but I would go back and 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 kind of tell myself to go back and and really study and learn function because um, it's you know there's no fixing people. Like you're people are more like a garden is what Faye always used to say. Like you have to kind of plant the seed, you have to nourish the soil. Like you have to create this environment that's going to allow them to adapt to the things that you're doing. For sure, you're not going to fix them like a car. And so I would go back and I would. I would tell myself that this is this is really what you're what you should be doing, and forget about the the, the negative stigmas and negative kind of press that the chiropractic profession has. You're not doing anything wrong by seeing somebody 12 to 15 times. Right. So I would go back and I'd I'd sit myself down and have a little talk. About <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. It's a good analogy with the garden. I think. Yeah. That's what I was trying to tell our athletes. Like, we're not healing you. We're just trying to make the best environment for your body to end up taking care of itself. Perfect. Through one way or the other. Like, that's all we're trying to figure out. Right. I can see how that would put more um, of an emphasis on what they do, too. Mm -hmm. Kind of take some self-responsibility for, you know, home care or stretches or whatever they're doing. And it kind of takes the the stress off of you. You know, this this approach to... You know, holistic approach to functional care, this holistic approach to patient care, to patient performance. You know, like once you know what their deficits are, and you know how to implement like the corrective measures, like the the stress is off you. Then it's just time and adaptation. Like it's not a stressful environment for you to like hurry and get this person back on the field. Like you know what's going to take. You know what you know. You have a rough idea how long it may take, but the stress is off both of you, and you can just kind of make the changes that you need to make for for the patients or for the athletes or whatever it is you whatever it is that you're doing sweet nice yeah all right so in closing (laughs) where can people find you check everything out and then anything else that you want them to check out or plug or any websites right go (laughs) Uh, yeah so people can find us at omaha spine and sport we're here in omaha nebraska we're in the western part of of omaha uh not too far from elkhorn um, we're on Facebook, and I believe Dr. Peters has even got us on Twitter. I'm not we'll, on we'll Twitter. Link, so we'll, yeah. we'll link them all up. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of out there on the World Wide Web, and you can find us there, and you can Google us, and you should be able to find us. Um, I guess the only thing I would tell people is that if you, if you haven't ever been to a chiropractor, we're more than backs and necks. Uh, we basically treat everything from TMJ to the first 
the first metatarsal phalangeal joint. So from toes to nose, like we nice. we kind of pride ourselves in, in in tackling the stuff that nobody else wants to tackle. That's that's what really excites us is to uh, is to see shoulder problems, hip problems, foot and ankle problems, plantar fasciitis. Like we 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 want to see it all. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks thank for you. Let's come on in here. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. No, thank you. Nice chatting with you. Thank you for checking out this episode of Clinically Press. You can always check out our full website at clinicallypress.com for all videos of each episode as well as all of our insights. Uh, we are on every podcast outlet out there, so please check us out wherever you'd like to. While you're there, if you could, please rate us. Uh, we'd appreciate it, and apparently it helps out tremendously. Also, check out our daily blog at totalathletherapy.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter where you'll get all those um, entries right to your inbox along with plenty of extras. Thank you again for checking out this episode and we hope to see you for the next one.